What is our testimony? Our testimony at work, our testimony at school for you students. Um, what's our testimony among our neighbors, our own children, um, at the grocery store, at Starbucks? What is our testimony supposed to be? So this will be a pra- very practical morning, and I hope, um, is that you, you will walk away encouraged um, to be the best example of Christ and likeness as possible in this really progressively pagan world. Um, but just to show of hands, can I see how many people are um, students in here? I see a lot of students. Okay, undergrad students. How many are postgrad students? So we have the seminarians and other places. Great. Um, how about uh, stay-at-home moms? Love it. Fantastic. And I, I see someone going like this. Well, I'm kind of a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> and uh, how many are in the secular workplace? Okay, so, so a lot of you. Great. So I think for those of you in the secular workplace, this might hit home well, and certainly for you students that will ultimately go into the secular workplace, this might hit home. Um, but there's a, a quote that um, I used to hear by Chuck Colson. I don't know Chuck Colson. He was part of the Watergate scandal, came to Christ. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. Sorry about that. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let me say that again, maybe without choking up. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. That is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I get emotional because I see so much of that. That quote actually comes from a song. Um, Many of you may have heard that song before. It played pretty regularly in the 90s. Does anybody know what the song is? If you you know where that quote came from in the song, it's part of the introduction, you get this delicious (laughs) granola bar as a gift. Okay, what is it? DC Talk. What if I stumble? What if I fall from the Jesus Freak album? Soft Heart, inspired. Here you go. We are ready. Ah, you pass that on. Great. I like it. A fellow rocker. That is great. Um, but this quote is really convicting, as you can tell. It's a stinging reminder of the facts of being a hypocrite. What does an unbelieving world find unbelievable about Christianity, the fact that there are so many so-called Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That really is what defines a hypocrite, right? So it's exactly what Paul said in his instructions to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So how can we be sure steadfast that we are not those people, but instead are a great testimony for Christ? When we go out into the world, to our Starbucks, to the grocery store, to our jobs, how can we ensure that we are an example of Christ's likeness? So the passage that I want to turn to this morning for our time is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. So let's turn there. Let's read it. 
says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So for 2,000 years, we've seen a constant struggle between the Christian church and the secular world, a constant battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and the clash between truth and error, an ongoing conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. But to be honest, what can we expect? I mean, the world crucified Christ, we are following Christ, and they're going to do the same to us. They're going to persecute us. It's like Luke 9.23 says, when Christ said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Today in our world, things are tough, and we all feel this progressive wave of um, wokeness everywhere we turn. And um, the world is definitely against the Christian church, and there is an ongoing assault against everything that we believe to be true. But the timestamp of when Peter writes this letter, the church was under tremendous persecution. He wrote it around 65 to 68 AD, and the persecution of the church started shortly after Christ's resurrection. The, the Jewish leaders were the main um, proponents of, of the persecution. They had crucified Christ, and now they wanted to just kill off all his teachings by killing off all the Christians, essentially. So that was rough. But yet, the more they persecuted, the, the more the church grew. And then, by the time Peter writes this letter, um, this persecution had progressed beyond just the Jewish leaders, but was now coming from the Roman leaders themselves, particularly Nero. So Nero had burned Rome um, because he had this love for architecture. So he burned down Rome so that he could rebuild it the way that he wanted to, and it made everybody mad, obviously. And what did he do? He blamed the Christians. They were the scapegoats for the burning of Rome. So now the, the whole of the Roman Empire is persecuting Christians. And that's the time that we're in here when Peter writes this very encouraging letter. So let's look back at our passage. So now that you understand the context, Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Now let me just stop there. This word but is very important. Now Brian would definitely tell you that that is a conjunction word. And he would probably sing the conjunction function song. But I'm not going to do that. Um, but I, I do want to note that Peter is using this word but to contrast the Christian believers with the rest of the world. He uses it to separate us, to draw a delineation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. This comparison happens a few times in the passage. If you look throughout this uh, passage, verses uh, 9 through 12, it says, But you are a chosen race. And then he goes on, for you once were not a people, but now you are a people, the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's drawing this comparison from two groups of people, the saved and the unsaved. I don't know if you've seen the movie, What About Bob? Bob says, um, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. <laughs> kind of funny quote, but 
Peter ultimately draws the ultimate comparison. He's saying there are two kinds of people, the saved and the unsaved, those who have been shown mercy, those who haven't been shown mercy. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thought when you think of just putting humanity into two buckets. We're part of the saved, and the rest of the world are the lost. So we're going to continue to see this contrast from Peter of the, the saved and the unsaved. In the previous verses leading up to verse 9, Peter talks about Christ as a stumbling block, a rock of offense to the unbelieving, unredeemed, non-elect, specifically those who are disobedient to the word, he says. And then he turns to the followers of Christ, the believers, the redeemed in verse 9, and he says, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So this is the first of the three points that I want to make this morning. When we ask ourselves, what is our testimony to a pagan world? It's this. Number one, we are set apart. So unlike believers who, I'm sorry, unlike unbelievers who, because of their rejection of Christ, are destined for eternal destruction, believers are a chosen race. Peter draws from an Old Testament concept here to make a clear distinction about God's elected people. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 7. 6 through 9. It says here, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not make you his beloved nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the people since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. So Peter identifies believers as chosen in the same way God chose Israel for a special purpose in his redemptive plan. That's why Israel is who they are. They were part of God's plan. It was not Israel's merit, nor is it our merit. It is because God chose us. And just as Deuteronomy says, it's because he loved us and he redeemed us. But it was his choice. He chose us. So Peter builds on this concept of being set apart when he says that we are a royal priesthood, the next little phrase there. Still referencing Old Testament themes, which the people of the time clearly understood, he refers to this royal priesthood um, as in Exodus 19.6. You don't have to turn there, but he says, you shall, not, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. When Israel forfeited that right by the rejection of the Messiah, the new elect of God, um, the church, are brought into the royal family and have the privilege of becoming royal priests of God. The concept here is that the priesthood serves the royal king. And who is the king? Jesus, right? Um, so the next phrase that Peter then uses is holy nation. And all this sets up to be set apart. The next phrase is holy nation. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this holy nation really drives the point um, home of being set apart or separated. Um, the word holy in and of itself means separate, and the word nation means people, a separate people. This goes back to the concept of the two buckets. There are believers, and there is the world, a holy nation, and everyone else. So we're a separate people, and that's juxtaposed against the unholy people of un unrighteousness. 
And then last in this little phrase, um, Peter goes on to say that we are a people of God's own possession. And I love this. God identifies himself with us. That is an amazing concept to be God's own possession. Um, we're considered holy and his cherished possession. The Greek word for the word possession means to purchase or to acquire for a price or to possess it. Believers belong to God because he bought them at the ultimate price with the death of his son, Jesus. So let's look at um, Titus 2, verse 14. Jump there. This really kind of says it all. Um, it says, looking for the blessed hope. Actually, we'll start in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord, of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. I mean, that says so much of what I want to talk about this morning. We are God's possession, bought and paid for by the ultimate price. And since we are his redeemed, we should be eager for good deeds as our testimony for him. To be God's possession means we are branded by his ownership. If you think of the word brand, it comes from really kind of branding a cow. You take the hot stick, you stick it on a cow, and it's the rancher's mark or whatever it might be, and it identifies the cow um, or the, the creature as his. Stamp it, burn it in, and that is the, the owner's, the rancher's possession. It's a way for the owner to say, this is my property. This is my possession. Well, Christ has put his mark on us. And uh, we are marked by his blood, and we are marked by his Holy Spirit. And so the, owners, the owner says, this is my chosen race, my royal priesthood, my holy nation. This is my possession. These are my people. He has put his mark on us. The world today is obsessed with brands. As you know, everyone's trying to build their brand. It happens with social influencers trying to build their brand. Big corporations are trying to build their brand. Um, and the, the more trusted the brand, the more likely consumers are to spend their time or money on it. Um, Forbes magazine lists the top 10 brands for 2022. Anybody want to take a guess at the top 10 brands? Number one brand out there? Yeah. Disney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're sitting at number seven on the list. We're there. Um, any other brands Do you guys recognize? What's that? Nike. Nike didn't make the list this year. <laughs> a Apple's the number one brand. The actual list is McDonald's. Go figure. Um, Louis Vuitton, Samsung's number eight, Disney number seven, Coca-Cola, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft is at number three, Google's at number two, and number one is Apple. And what strong brands have in common is that they offer a consistent quality, um, they offer consistent quality with integrity. I'm not quite sure where the quality bit fits in with McDonald's, but at least they're consistent. I do like their fries. My, my, my point is, shouldn't we as a church reflect these features? Shouldn't we as followers of Jesus Christ present or represent our, our brand of Christ in a way that shows the world our consistency and integrity? Um, we should be holy examples, and we should look different to the world. Our sanctification is inseparable from justification. Therefore, we should be a model of good works with consistency and integrity because of Christ's redemptive work for us. Have you ever been down to Hollywood? Um, 
I've seen this actually when I travel internationally as well. Um, there's usually some schmo in a Mickey Mouse outfit trying to take pictures in front of different landmarks, and it's always a bad representation. If you go down to Hollywood, I mean, you've got the incredible bulk down there, and um, you've got, he doesn't look like Mickey Mouse, it's like uh, Mickey the Drowned Rat or something like that. They just don't, they're just not authentic. And um, that's just a, uh, I don't know why people take their pictures with them because they're just, I mean, that's not Superman, that's not Wonder Woman or whoever the, the person's supposed to be. It's just a cheap imitation. And as believers, we cannot be cheap imitations of Christ. Um, we can't be a bad imitation of what Christ has done for us, and we can't show the world a lack of inconsistency and a lack of integrity. I'd like to turn to Exodus 20 for just a second. This is a little offhanded here, but Exodus 20 um, and the Ten Commandments. So if we could turn there. I think this is a really interesting point. Um, Exodus 20. All right, we'll start in uh, verse 7. So look this up. You shall not take the norm, name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, you think, well, what does that have to do with this? Well, this commandment is mostly com um, commonly understood to mean our speech, but it is also a command to not flippantly take on the Lord's name upon yourself in a vain, self-serving way. So if we're going to take on the name of Christ or brand ourselves, as we've been talking about, as Christians, we cannot take that on without considering whose name we represent. We need, need to uphold our Christian integrity and live consistent lives for the namesake in alignment with his word, branded as those who are transformed by his death on the cross, set apart as those who are God's own possession. So that's really what a great brand is. Um, when Disney bought Pixar, um, we, got, we were able to have a lot of dealings with Steve Jobs. And Steve, as we know, since Apple's number one, he was fantastic at branding. And actually said something that stuck with me. He said, a brand is like a trust account. You either are putting deposits into it or you're making withdrawals. Let me say that again. A brand is like a trust account. You're either putting deposits into it or you're making withdrawals. And, you know, I love that allegory for the Christian life. If we represent Christ, if we are his possession, then with every interaction at work, at school, at a meeting, in a store, at home, um, we're either making a brand deposit for the kingdom or we're making a brand withdrawal. So uh, let me say that again. If we represent Christ, if we are his possession, then with every interaction, we are either making a brand deposit for the kingdom or we are making a brand withdrawal. It's either a testimony of integrity and consistency as one who has been transformed or a brand deposit or it is a brand withdrawal when those around us do not see the God we serve represented in our lives. We do not want to be the ones who proclaim Jesus with our lips, as Chuck Colson said, and walk out the door and deny him by our lifestyle. Instead, instead we, are, we should be eager for good deeds because we are his possession and we're his brand, as it were, and are those who are set apart for Christ. So the first point is we are set apart in this passage. I um, hope we made that clear. Next, number two, besides being set apart, we are also to be his ambassadors, specifically his ambassadors of his light and his mercy. So let's look back at the text in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, 
All of you probably had your finger in the text, and I did not. There it is. Okay. Um, okay, let's uh, pick it up in verse 9. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First, the so that is a great connector to what was said earlier. Why has God made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a possession of his own? It's so that, one reason, so that in our exalted positions, we do what's most important, that we proclaim the excellencies of God. The Greek word for proclaim essentially means to publish or to advertise. Advertise kind of goes with that whole branding concept. Um, We are to advertise to the world all what God has done for us. Again, we are to show the world that we are his unique, one-of-a-kind brand, and uh, we are to advertise, proclaim, and publicize what? The verse goes on. The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There really is no higher privilege for us as believers than to be proclaimers and ambassadors of the gospel to the world. In the text, we see that we are specifically called to be his ambassadors of light. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called has who I'm sorry, proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And setting this, uh, John MacArthur mentioned that the unregenerate world has faced two kinds of darkness. There's intellectual darkness, which is essentially the inability to see and know the truth. And there's a com- um, that's like complete ignorance. And the second is moral darkness, which is the sinful state of unbelievers who are trapped in the spiritual darkness of Satan. Peter really is kind of referring to the second form of darkness, moral darkness, in this passage. Not only do believers walk in the darkness, but they love it. It's like what Romans 1 says, that they, do, they not only do the same, that is all sorts of evil, but also approve of those who practice them. It's so true of what's happening today in our society. Um, let's turn to John 3, 19 through 20. I know we're flipping around a lot, but I'd rather let the scriptures speak to you all this morning. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. Man, does that not describe our world today? Uh, they, They stay in the darkness so that their evil deeds behind the scenes are not exposed. If they come to the light, everything will be exposed. So they stay deep in the shadows, deep in their sin, hidden away in wickedness. You know, the two most contrasting colors are, are black and white. And pure light is all of God's marvelous colors mixed together. If, if you think of the, uh, if you go on your Mac or your IBM, if you still own one of those, um, there, there's a little color wheel if you're doing like PowerPoint or something. And all those colors, every color that God created is in that color wheel. And then when they're all condensed, the one dot in the middle where all the colors come together, that's pure light. On the reverse of that, if you take the luminosity away, Um, on that little color wheel. If you take all the light out, it just becomes black. All the colors turn to black. I just think that's a great um, contrast of those who have been redeemed by the truth, who have all of God's beauty in them, and those who have completely rejected the truth, which is darkness or blackness. 
And that's kind of the point here is that we have been called to his marvelous light. Peter reminds us that believers have been called out of the darkness, are sin exposed, and forgiven because of Christ's amazing work on the cross and his marvelous light. Um, Colossians 1.13, you don't have to turn there, but it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a pretty cool word, transferred. We went from one place, a place of darkness, and were transferred to the kingdom of his marvelous light. When we were called out of darkness to be part of God's chosen people and possession, Christ's light illuminated our minds so that we could discern the truth and apply it to our lives. This means we receive both what MacArthur said, the intellectual light of God's truth and the moral light of a changed soul. So as we consider what is our witness and testimony, which is our question this morning, we are prompted to apply the truth that has been illuminated to us and let it affect the very fabric of everything we do. So thus becoming ambassadors of light to the world. Secondly, Peter says we need to be ambassadors of mercy. Um, uh, back to the verse, it says, You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're to amba- be ambassadors of mercy as well. Another word for mercy is compassion, the comp- compassion that God has bestowed on us. And what does Peter mean here? Remember, he's speaking to Gentile believers. But he refers to the Jewish people when he says, You were not a people. The Israelites, the Jews, were known to be a people of God. They had an identity. Before Christ, the Gentiles had no identity, no affiliation with the one true God, Jehovah. Or as mentioned earlier, they had no brand. To be God's people was a title reserved for Israel, reserved for the Jews. Now, hence, Peter's reference that the Gentiles that he is writing to were not a people. But now, in contrast, he says that because of Christ and his mercy towards all those he has chosen, they, although once not a people, are now the people of God, and it's his mercy and compassion in choosing them that separates them from the rest of the world. Therefore, what do we do? Well, it says right here, we proclaim it. As I've said, this is the greatest purpose that we have, to be a testimony of those who once were lost but are now found. We had no identity, uh, we had no brand, but now we are identified as the children of God, branded by his mercy, his compassion, and his grace. No longer aliens, no longer orphans, but heirs of the kingdom of God. And there's so much hope in that promise. And it is a hope that the world does not have. And they need to see it in us. Um, I love it when, um, this has happened a few times, where you're working at work and there's another believer that you're working with. They are introduced as a believer. You don't know them. But in just a short amount of time, you go, are you a believer? Say, yeah, 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 I'm a believer. Say, I knew it, I knew it. So that's how our light should be. We should wear Christ on our sleeves. And you hope that if I can recognize that in someone else or they can recognize that in me, that others around us are going to be affected. It's just a, a great testimony to be identified, a brand identity that people see in us right away. We should race to get our testimony and identity with Christ out there. Um, we can kind of think of it as our brand identity. Let's look at Titus 2, 7 through 8. Again, lots of flipping here. Titus 2, verses 7 through 8. It says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, 
dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Following Paul's advice here is a definitive brand deposit. You know, we talked about that. Brand deposits are withdrawals. If you follow Titus 2, 7 through 8, it's a brand deposit. We need to impact the world with that kind of ambassadorship, proclaiming his truths by our witness, showing the world that we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light and stand united as a people who have been shown mercy. Examples of good deeds, pure doctrine, in our, it's in our reputations, it's in our speech, all that comes together as our testimony. These things can play out very practically in the workplace and in our different spheres of influence. Um, at Disney, they don't tolerate me um, taking company time to discuss religion with my coworkers. However, every interaction I have should be a witness and ultimately lead up to the opportunity when I can share my faith out of the office. Um, I've had you know, a number of opportunities to bring coworkers to church or to um, a talent that I've worked with. I've brought, I think of one talent um, that I brought to the church, and I just think it's funny. Some of you know Tim Brenner. Do you guys know Tim Brenner? He's a jokester. I mean, we're, some people are related to Tim Brenner. So, um, and I've told Tim this, so I'm not talking behind his back. But I brought a talent. He, you guys would know Carrie Elways, not to drop a name, but you know Carrie Elways. He was uh, in the Princess Bride. He was the Dread Pirate Roberts, the um, you know the blonde guy Wesley. So um, I'd worked with him and got to know him, and um, he, he uh, just sharing my faith with him. I've, I boldly shared my faith with him. He actually joined us on a family vacation one year. And um, I said, well, you got to come to church with me. So he came to church. But Carrie had obviously bought a brand new pair of pants to come to church in. And, um, but he forgot to take off the uh, little seam on the back where it says, you know, size 32, 34, right? You're going down the, the leg of his pants. And, of course, Tim Brenner goes up. He's behind us in the pews at church. And he goes up and goes, whoosh right off his pants. He goes, hey, you forgot this, buddy. And um, I'm just like, oh, no. Has my testimony gone out the door? No, no, not at all. No, Carrie loved it. He thought it was really funny. But anyways, I don't know why I thought about that. It's a, um, but it did not um, deter Carrie from coming back to church. He's come several times. But just to, to be a testimony out in the world, we want people to recognize us. We want them to see our brand. We want them to be interested and see the hope that we have in us. We're very different from the world. We cannot look the same as the world. So practically speaking, I think the Christmas concerts are a great opportunity. It's a great witness opportunity just to bring people, your coworkers, to church. And hopefully, they come to hear the music, obviously, at Christmas time. Everybody loves music. But hopefully, it's because of the appeal, appeal that they see in you. And um, it's actually your testimony and the difference that they see in you that makes them want to come and come see our church and be part of this family and really see what Christ-likeness looks like. So that's what it means to be an ambassador, advertising or proclaiming Christ. So our witness, number one, is number one, we are set apart. Number two, we are to be ambassadors proclaiming his marvelous light and mercy. And finally, we are to live godly lives. Let's look at the, continue to look at these verses. Uh, let's look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So far, I hope I've made the point that effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. 
Again, it's, it's those brand deposits that we want to make with every encounter with everyone we meet. And to be distinguishable, we can't look like the rest of the world. Not a cheap imitation, but an authentic identity of Christ in us. Peter gets really practical here when he says beloved, which is a term of endearment. So Peter's passionate here. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. First, well, why does he call them aliens and strangers? Well, it's because of what he's established in the previous verses that, are not, that they are not members of the world society. Remember, he is constantly creating these two buckets, the world in one bucket and the Christians in another. Christians are not a part of the first bucket. In fact, Paul said in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. So since we don't have citizenship in the world, we should consider ourselves aliens and strangers. We're like foreigners. So if you've ever traveled abroad, and I've, I've been able to do a lot of that in my career, um, we've, I know what it's like to feel like a foreigner. One of my early trips was um, to Korea. And I'm a picky eater, and they'll eat anything in Korea. And every day, it seemed like they just wanted to eat kimchi. And I do not like kimchi. I don't like cabbage. I don't like Tabasco sauce or whatever it is that they put in there. But that's all they ate. So for like two weeks, I ended up just eating these Keebler's cheese and peanut butter crackers. It's the only thing that I could find to eat in all of Korea. And um, so they called me the, uh, the uh, cheesy, peanut, cheesy peanut cracker guy. So that was kind of became my reputation. And the last night that I was there, they were going to take me out to a nice dinner. And they put this pot in the middle of the, of the uh, table. And um, I'm like, oh, no, what's in that pot? And uh, they lift the lid, and I see this giant tentacle go, yep. And I don't like seafood. So I, I see this tentacle, and I just go, oh, no, what am I going to do? And they called it Octopus's Garden. And at that moment, I could relate to how we want to be home. I wanted to be home so bad. I did not want to be a foreigner any longer. I just wanted to get home and stop eating these cheesy crackers. Um, but uh, that is how we should feel as believers, that we should, as citizens of heaven, we should feel like foreigners in this world. Um, we should feel like aliens and strangers and have a longing for home um, where our true citizenship is, which is heaven. So, and since we as believers are not part of this world, Peter instructs us that we need to abstain from fleshly lusts. And this is a warning from Peter that the old self will continue to creep in while we're here on this earth and continue to tempt us. But the command to abstain signifies that saints have the ability by the new life and the indwelling spirit to restrain from fleshly flesh. This is key to our testimony and to our witness um, that we not follow the pattern that the world sets before us. The Roman culture at the time of Peter's writing was really sexualized, immoral, it was sensual, and it's the same as it is today. That's just how the world of Satan operates. Fleshly lusts, more specifically, are really described in Galatians 5, and I want you to take a look at what this term, fleshly lusts, means. So let's turn to Galatians 5, 9 through 20. Now, the deeds of the flesh, exactly what uh, Peter has said, fleshly lust, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a really clear description on how the saints are not to be. It's a description of what man is like before our transformation, before we were chosen and given God's mercy. And by contrast, the command for believers comes in the following verses in the description of the fruits of the Spirit. And to be honest, as we talk about godly living, um, I can't think of uh, a better group of go-to verses than this in Galatians 5, um, which are the fruits of the Spirit. So if you look down at verse 22... It says, but the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. With these on display, we can't help but validate the gospel with our lives. We've got to put the fruits of the Spirit on display. Another great reminder, um, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it, is from 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world. We talked about that. We don't want to, we're foreigners here. Do not love the world, world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. So while we remain in this world, the pitfalls of fleshly lust will continue to bombard us, kind of like um, the bombs raining down on the enemy in a war, which is why Peter says they wage war against our souls. Back to our context here. It's the idea of the devastating effects of a relentless, malicious aggression, like a long-term military campaign. Our souls are being pummeled by everything the world um, wants to throw our way. I mean, if you just look at the TV commercials today, it's absolutely ridiculous what we are being exposed to and what we have the potential to expose our children to. Um, it's a full-on assault from Satan. So it's waging war against our souls. As we go back to our text, um, in verse 11, we have the charge we just discussed toward internal discipline, which is abstaining from the fleshly lusts of the world. And then Peter makes this pivot toward the outward deportment of godly living, which is kind of our main point. This gets to the heart of our witness and testimony to a lost world. Verse 12 in our text says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is how we effectively evangelize, by making our transformed inner lives to the outside world, um, making it visible to the outside world. If we're to be effective witnesses, it is essential for us to manifest behavior beyond reproach. It's absolutely critical to our testimony. It's the only way to show outward validity to the truth of the gospel. If they don't see any difference in us compared to everyone else, then our testimony could render us null and void. Remember, it's the two buckets. We are different from the world. World's in this bucket. We are the saved. We are the redeemed. However, if our inward transformation is authentic, we should look so different outwardly that we will have the potential to lead others to Christ, which is what Peter says right here when he says that because of our good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. So this means that our testimony, our godly living and good deeds, when witnessed by the world, will lead to opportunity for them to come to Christ and glorify God in the day when they are all judged. 
This outward testimony or internal transformation on our parts is critical to our evangelical mission. So what do we need to know to be a witness to a pagan world? These three things. Know that we're set apart. We need to know that we are to be ambassadors proclaiming his marvelous light and his mercy. And outwardly, we are to live godly lives. Um, I'd like to just maybe look at some practical ways. We've got a few minutes left. Um, some practical ways that we can apply this. Um, just some things that come to my mind. Number one, be at church. Let those around you know that Sunday is the Lord's Day. And we need to invite them to come with us. And hopefully they won't get the tags ripped off their pants. <laughs> Study the word so when opportunity presents itself, you can give an account of its truths. Uh, so, so be at church, study the word. Uh, another one is surround yourself with other believers so, so that we can be a united testimony, a consistent brand. Um, watch your words. Um, we, we heard that in uh, Titus, that uh, there's no coarse jesting or foul language. Let others see the hope that is in you and be ready to share the gospel as the Lord allows opportunity. And most of all, uh, be an example for Christ through your fruit, your display of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And last, I, I, I want to drive this point home one more time, is um, remember to make deposits for the kingdom and not withdrawals. Uh, let's not confess Jesus with our lips and deny him by our lifestyle. Let's be a witness for the gospel, keeping our behavior excellent in the world so that as they observe our good deeds, um, we will be a testimony of God's transforming power in hopes that those around us may come to know Christ through our testimonies. And John has been talking about um, the transformed life on Sunday mornings, and it's so applicable here. In fact, I think today I looked at Grace to You. Does anybody have a Grace to You? Did they pick one up? What's John's message today? because it's going to completely overshadow anything that I just said, but it's on the same topic. <laughs> the walk of the true Christians. So if, if I said something stupid, just for, ignore it and go hear John, because it's going to be really fantastic. So um, anyways, do we have any questions about being a testimony in the workplace, outside in the world? We have a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, we, I work an eight-hour day. That gives me 16 hours in the day to share the gospel. So I, uh, uh, I think when people come to me and, and uh, others, uh, I've, I've heard many stories about just being a testimony, the things that we talked about, being a testimony in the workplace. When those opportunities arise, 
absolutely take them out to lunch on your lunch break. Um, take them out to dinner, invite them over, invite them to church. All those opportunities to just share Christ with them. Always take advantage of it, obviously. Um, and, you know, if it's a, a hall conversation, I think you could have that hall conversation. I don't think you can um, preach an entire sermon to them in the hallway. Certainly at Disney, uh, they would not uh, look favorably on that. But, um, well, as people see the difference in your life, I think you take adv- the opportunity to just whenever possible to, to spend the time with them to be able to share your faith. Yeah, yeah I, I mentioned, and I don't want to say it again because I mentioned them, but Carrie always, for example, I didn't preach to him or share my faith with them at work, but as soon as we got outside of work, he ended up coming on like a vacation with us, and I, I took that time to just really sit down, take him out to coffee, and really explain the gospel to him. But I didn't do that on company time. No. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned it a couple times in here that um, it, I think the example to our children is so important. Um, it's, it's not what we... What, how's the phrase go, Carrie? It's the children learn from our... You know it. Yeah, it's caught, not taught, essentially. It's caught, not taught, all right? So it's caught, not taught. And I think the testimony that we have before our children, if, if, if we have outbursts of anger all the time, like we learn as we looked at the, the sins outlined in Galatians 5, we have outbursts of anger all the time. That's a terrible testimony to our own children. We need to be a testimony of Christ. Our, our kids uh, essentially need to be able to look to us as models and follow us and say, look, I see the difference in them. I see my difference in my mom and my dad versus what I see in Jimmy's mom and dad down the street. They're very different. I'm going to follow that example, and ultimately we lead them to Christ through that, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Well, that is tough. Um, I think as we continue to show the fruits of the Spirit, they will see a difference in our life. Everybody knows that sin is sin. They may want to justify it, but in their heart of hearts, I think they know that sin is sin. And um, the more we can be consistent, they will see that. They'll see the difference in our lives. They may be with, with all their friends and everybody around the workplace. They may want to get in there and do the worst, most awful things. Um, but at the end of the day, they know it's going to be sin, and they're going to look to you as an example of Christ's likeness. They're going to say, but wait a minute. I, I, I like the way this guy lives. Um, I think we can be a testimony that way. So, well, great. Well, thank you for your time this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Um, we thank you for choosing us, for setting us apart to be your witnesses. Help us to proclaim and advertise your marvelous light. Um, and your grace and your mercy. And may your spirit work in us to live godly lives before the world so that others would see your love in us and the hope that we have and in the salvation that only you can provide. Um, We pray that you'll continue to bless our time this morning as we go on to church. We hear what John has to say on this same exact topic. Um, We pray that uh, it will be a blessing to all, and we pray that our time of fellowship will be sweet. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.